Well, thank you, choir and musicians, for leading us. And uh, I mean, I told you this in the first service. The hymns and songs are really lovely. I'm really thankful and I really appreciate your service and ministry to the church. Well, good morning, my beloved family and friends in Christ. I'd like to also welcome guests and visitors who are with us this morning. Welcome, I'm Oliver, and I'm one of the pastors here in this church. And I'm really delighted to meet you. We had a wonderful Reformation concert yesterday evening. For those of you who did not come, you missed something really wonderful. And today, we are observing Reformation Sunday. On both these days, we have been singing hymns and songs related to the historical Protestant Reformation. But we have not just been singing songs and hymns, but we've also been singing biblical truths. The Reformation is known for its five solas, which is Latin for five alones. These five alones represent five biblical truths recovered during the Reformation. These are Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. But just why are these emphases so important? You see, the Reformation was primarily a rediscovery of the biblical truth of the gospel of God's saving work in Christ Jesus. The key foundation distinctive of the Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith, or faith alone. It's faith in Christ alone that saves. It's true faith alone. It's not true anything else, not together with anything else. But why is this doctrine so special? You see, when it was recovered during the Reformation, it was distinct and different from the prevailing Roman Catholic view of how one can be righteous before God. The Roman Catholic Church taught that you started with faith in Christ, but then you go on to complete it with your good works and merits obtained through religious rituals. The Reformation view of justification was also distinct from what many people thought, that you had to earn your way to heaven by your own effort. And both of these views led to the many different ways of self-help and effort as people try on their own to earn eternal life. The Reformation view of justification by faith alone means that you are legally declared or counted right before God through faith in Christ alone. And what this means is that you do not need to work hard by disciplined effort to earn your righteousness before God. You also do not need to top up your uh, faith. You do not start your faith. You do not start with faith in Christ, then work to actually top up your righteousness by self-effort or religious rituals. And it's not just in the 1500s AD that we get confused and messed up how we can be right before God. Even in recent years, liberal, quote-unquote, Christian scholars argue that the doctrine of justification by faith is actually something invented and taught by Paul, that Jesus himself taught no such thing. And they seek to downplay this important doctrine of the Christian faith. This precious biblical truth of the gospel under attack. However, 
what does Scripture actually say? Our authority is, after all, Scripture alone. So today we shall look to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Here in one of Jesus' parables, we shall see what Jesus himself teaches about how you and I can be righteous before God. And before we get into today's message, let us pray in the preparation to the hearing of God's word. Living God, help us to hear your holy word so that we may truly understand. That understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honour and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord, for his name's sake. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. We actually heard it read for us just now. And the thing is that actually it's a familiar passage. And because it's so familiar, we do need to slow down and look at it carefully. Let's not treat it cursorily and think that we really understand the passage. But for us to fully understand this passage, we need to keep in mind the background. Jesus tells this parable or short story on his final journey with his disciples to Jerusalem. During this part of the journey, he instructs his disciples on prayer, on faith, and on the essence of what discipleship is. And discipleship is faithful dependence on a gracious God. It starts with the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, which we'll cover today. It continues with a picture of having faith like a child. And he ends with an encounter between the rich man and Jesus. And what common theme runs through these three sections? It talks about humility that trusts God totally. With this in mind, let us then look at Luke chapter 18, verse 9. We know that stories have the power not to just convey truths, but also impact our hearts and transform us. And here we see that Jesus tells a simple story that carries a key biblical truth, starting with verse 9. He, meaning Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here, right at the start, the Gospel writer Luke gives us Jesus' purpose for this parable. Jesus tells this story to some people this possibly includes the Pharisees, but are likely to include others in the audience as well. These people had one characteristic in common. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But just what is righteousness? There's a rich biblical understanding for this word. The root meaning of this word means straightness. It carries the notion, the idea of an action which conforms to a norm. The Old Testament idea of righteousness is about relationship between both between God and man and between man and man. So the idea is to be righteous is to be in a right relationship with God. And the people whom Jesus is targeting believe that they themselves on their own can attain, can attain a right relationship with God. So you see here, the main focus of the parable is then about a righteousness. It's about righteousness and those who believe they can reach their goal by the means of their own efforts. 
The people Jesus warns in this parable are the self-righteous. They are convinced that by their own efforts and merit, they are acceptable to God. And we have all encountered the self-righteous before, haven't we? Now we have met proud people who think they are always right, haven't we? And what's one of the signs we see? They will look around and see you and go, ew. Maybe not aloud, maybe they're too polite to say it aloud, but they most likely to say this in their mind. They look at you with disdain and disregard. Or as Luke writes, they treat you and others with contempt. A strong word. They basically pour scorn on you. Jesus tells us this is a symptom associated with those who are self-righteous. They treat others around them with contempt and disregard. However, before you actually look around and see who around you fits that description, please realize that Jesus is also addressing us. We are often self-righteous. I know I am. I know I'm prone to it as well. This is a common human temptation and failing. To think of ourselves better than we actually are. And to look down on others. Jesus, in telling this parable, counters such self-righteousness. He tells his listeners what it truly means to be a righteous person. How then are we justified or counted as righteous before God? Jesus continues in verses 10 to 13. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, I'm not like a collector over there. Eyes of all off, do not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. You know, you can almost imagine at the mention of these two persons in the story, you can imagine the Pharisee in Jesus' audience standing straighter, you know, puffing out the chest. You see, in first century Israel, the Pharisees were highly regarded. They were the religious leaders and considered to be upright and highly respected in their society. You know, I was cracking my brain thinking about the modern-day equivalent. The modern-day equivalent would perhaps be a pastor, or at least I certainly hope you all think so. Okay? And tax collectors were considered to be scum. You know, tax collectors were Israelites who worked for the oppressive Roman Empire who occupied the land. They were often thought of as betrayers to their nation. Moreover, they often collected more taxes than they needed. And then they embezzled the excess funds to fill their own pockets. They were despised and loathed by the people. And again, I was thinking, what would be a modern-day equivalent? A modern-day equivalent could be that of a pimp or a drug dealer, highly scorned by society. The pastor and the pimp. Now, how's that for a sermon title? Anytime you mention a Pharisee and a tax collector, the first century audience automatically knew who the good guy in the story was. And what happened? These two men went up to the temple to pray. And in first century Israel, to go to the temple to pray was to go to attend a worship service. You do not just go for personal prayer time. 
you actually attend a service and you pray together, you pray corporately with others. And according to author Kenneth Bailey, the only daily service in the temple area was the atonement offerings that took place at dawn in the morning and again at 3pm in the afternoon. Each service began outside the sanctuary at the great high altar with the sacrifice for the sins of Israel of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar. They follow a precise ritual. And in the middle of the prayers, there will be sounds of silver trumpets, the clang of cymbals, and the reading of a psalm. Then the officiating priest will enter the outer part of the sanctuary, where we will offer incense and trim the lamps. At that point, at that point, when the officiating priest disappeared into the building, those worshippers in attendance could offer their private prayers to God. And it's precisely at this time, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. You know, better translation can read the Pharisee stand apart from other people while he attends the temple service. You know, perhaps his distance is a reflection of his contempt of others around him. He just does not want to stand close to those he disregards. He does not want to stand close to those he thinks are worthless. The Pharisee prays, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Do you hear that? What's the number of eyes in his prayer? He repeats I five times. It's almost as if while he's talking to God, the Pharisee was really talking about himself. And you look at the prayer. Rather than comparing himself to God's expectation of him, he compares himself to others. He looks at the others around him and thinks of them as people who get money from others by threats or behaving badly morally or sexually immoral. Basically, he thinks of them as a worthless bunch. And of course, what did he do? He thanks God that he's not like them, of course. And especially, he's not like the tax collector hanging out there in the far corner. And to further persuade and convince God that he's a good person, he actually goes on and tells God how religious he is. He fasts twice a week. Actually, the Old Testament law do not require this much fasting. But the Pharisee was actually being extra religious. And on top of that, he gives tithes of all that he gets. Again, the Old Testament commandments only require a tithe of the crops. But to be extra religious, he gives tithes of all he gets. In summary, the Pharisee, in praying, tells God, God, you know what? I'm such a good guy. Aren't you glad that I'm on your team? Or as Spurgeon in preaching this passage, titles his sermon, Too Good to be Safe. The Pharisee thinks he's too good to need saving. I mean, what need is there to be safe? He thinks he's really so good in God's eyes. He thinks that by his own self-effort, he's righteous before God. He is self-righteous. He trusts in himself. 
that he was righteous before God. You know, I, I am a single guy, so I don't really have uh, opportunity to interact with children. But I'm thankful for those in the congregation who invite me to their house. And I've seen how you know, the parents deal with the children. And have you seen how a child caught in the act of doing something wrong? You have, right? He knows he has committed wrong. And he keeps his eyes toward, you know, not daring to look at the face of his dad or his mom. The child's recognition of his guilt keeps him remorseful. And we see this is the very posture of the tax collector. We read by the tax collector standing far off, will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector stands far off in the corner, Perhaps in acknowledging his guilt, he barely dares to approach God. In his remorse, he will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but keeps them lowered. He beats his chest, an expression of his sorrow and repentance. He cries out to God, 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 be merciful to me, a sinner. He admits he's a sinner. He gives no excuses for himself. He approaches God, whom he knows is the only hope for him to be saved. And he pleads for mercy. Actually, this verse does not use the common Greek word for mercy. Instead, this verse actually uses the word which translates the Old Testament word for to cover or mercy seat or make atonement. In the Bible, to atone means to make amends or redress for sin by means of a blood sacrifice. So the cry of the tax collector is better translated. God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. And remember, what's the context at this time? Remember what's happening at the temple at this time? The officiating priest is making a sacrifice for the sins of Israel using a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar. A blood sacrifice of a lamb for the atonement of the sins of Israel is being made. You see what is actually happening here? As the tax collector was observing the atonement offering, he cries out to God for mercy. He recognizes that he, unlike the Pharisee, he has nothing to commend himself to God. He has no religious works. He has nothing of merit. He knows that he is a sinner. And all he could do was to throw himself at the mercy of God and ask God to make an atonement for him as the atoning offering was being made. Only God can save him. He trusted in the promise of God to be merciful. It was this faith that trusted God to make an atonement for him that brings forgiveness the tax collector. You know, most of you probably know I like watching movies. I mean, those of you who know me think that, well, you're quite right. I, I really do think a lot. I do read a lot of books. So one of the things I like to do is to treat myself to movies that are less, that requires less thought. So one of the movies I like to watch would be things that, like for example, recently, um, okay, this movie where within the first half an hour there was like a high body count. 
So I like to watch action movies that basically, you know, you don't really think. And I'm sure many of you like movies, but in particularly, you probably like movies that have something unexpected happening at the end. Is this twist in the plot line of something turned upside down that makes for a good story? And you see this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, he often writes of the upside down nature of the Gospel, where something upside down to the world's conventional wisdom happens at the end. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you notice that happening all the time. So contrary to the audience expectation, is actually the tax collector rather than the Pharisee that ends up being praised and commended by Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The pimp, rather than a pastor, turns out to be the hero of the story. Jesus tells them that a tax collector rather than a Pharisee went home justified. And this scandalized and shocked Jesus' audience. Imagine that. And we see your justification is the legal declaration by God that we are in a right standing with Him. It involves the forgiveness of our sins and the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us. And we see God Himself declaring the tax collector to be righteous before him, rather than the Pharisee. The tax collector, unexpectedly, the tax collector's sins are forgiven, and he is restored to a right relationship with God. And the million-dollar question is this. How was it that a tax collector was declared righteous and safe? Jesus tells us, For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have heard these verses many times, and when we hear this verse, we think that this verse actually calls for us to embrace humility so that God can bring honor and elevate us in due time. But this is taking the verse out of context, and it's not what it means. What Jesus is saying is that if, like the Pharisee, you exalt yourself, you think that by your own efforts and merits, by your own efforts and merits, that you can be righteous before God. The end result is that you'll be humbled and proven wrong. Rather, if you are like a tax collector, you know that you are a sinner with nothing to commend yourself to God, and you humble yourself, trusting in God's mercy. To save you, the end result is that you'll be exalted and brought into a right relationship with God. If you, through faith, humbly depend on God's mercy to make an atonement for you, you will, as a result, be pronounced as justified and receive God's gift of righteousness. You will be justified through faith in God's promise of mercy. You will be justified through faith in God's promise of salvation in Christ Jesus. Self-righteousness does not justify. Faith in Christ alone justifies. 
Now, knowing you can be righteous before God only through faith alone, what does this mean for you and me? So what? You know, many times we talk about doctrines like this, and most of us think doctrines are something, you know, airy-fairy, you put in your head, or something theologians talk about. It has no practical impact on our daily lives. No. Doctrines have practical impact. So what? So we know this. What can we do? How can we live in response? Firstly, you trust in God's mercy for the forgiveness of your sins. In God's mercy for the forgiveness of your sin. The text collector prayer is almost like a gospel presented in summary. I really love the prayer. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, for my non-Christian friends out there who are wondering how you can be in a right relationship with God, the text collector prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, serves as a concise guide. What do you do? First, you trust that God is righteous and merciful. Second, you admit and confess that you are a sinner. You have trespassed against God and rightly deserve His punishment. You trust that God Himself will make atonement for you. And He has done so through the blood of Christ Jesus. Lastly, you respond to God by crying out to Him to be merciful to you. If this is your desire, after the service, please feel free to approach any of the elders and pastors. Or you can talk to a friend that you know. Uh, tell them that you want to respond and trust in God's mercy for the forgiveness of your sins. Secondly, you trust that you are in a right relationship with God through faith alone. You trust that you are in a right relationship with God through faith alone. This means that you do not start, need to start with faith in Christ and have your sins forgiven. Then work to kind of top up your righteousness with self-effort, with religious activities, with quiet time to be accepted by God. I've spoken to and know of some in the church who think that you need first to get yourself right by your own self-effort to be really worthy of God's love and forgiveness. Perhaps they have heard well-meaning family or friends tell them, you know, do not do this. If you do, th do this, God will not love you. Or they you tell them, some family or friends tell them, do this or else God will not love you. But the thing is, friends, you look at what Scripture says, God's love and acceptance of us is not, not conditional on our efforts. Our right relationship with God is true faith alone. Nothing else you do can earn your right relationship with God. Nothing else you do not do can affect your relationship with God. And I speak especially to young people on Miss. Last year we had a youth camp and uh, one of our camp speakers that we had for the camp, Hannah actually asked the young people, how many of you think that you need to actually clean up your life and get your act together before God will love you? And close to half of the young people in the church raised their hands, though the younger ones. So I speak to the young people, Miss. I'm speaking to you. Do not base your acceptance by God on your efforts at doing the right things or taking part in religious activities. You are justified through faith in Christ alone. You are in a right relationship with God through faith alone. Trust 
in this gospel promise. You know, I'm sure this struggle may not be limited only to the young among us. For the older ones in our midst, take heed and be encouraged as well. Finally, you fight the sin of trusting in your own self-righteousness. You fight the sin of trusting in your own self-righteousness. You see, even after we trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, as Christians, we still fall to the sin habit of treating others around us with disregard and contempt. And when we do so, it reveals the sin of self-righteousness in our hearts. You see, Jesus in this parable did not condemn obedience to the law and commandments of the Bible, but rather he condemns the self-righteous, people who trust that their own effort at rule-keeping can earn them a righteous standing before God. And the catch is this. We can be rule-keepers both ways. We can be rule-keepers that that seek to either keep all the laws and commandments from the Bible scrupulously, or we can be rule-keepers to our very own law. And for both cases, we can tell this is so when we start despising others and treating them with scorn and disregard. This is often a telltale sign that we are self-righteous. And here I'm speaking to both groups of the church, both segments of the church. One group that tends towards legalistic tendencies, but who rightly believe in obeying God, as well as those who tend towards the young, reformed and restless. Okay, For those of you who don't know the term, it's usually no... Uh, used on people below 30, those that visit certain websites by certain uh, gospel preachers. Okay? And this group, they rightly celebrate the gospel of grace. But the thing is, the danger for both groups, if you tend to treat others with contempt and disregard, check your heart for self-righteousness. We can be in either group and also be self-righteous. We are all sinners saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and not through any of our own merits. This truth should cause us to be humble and to seek humility and love in our interactions with others in the church. Just six verses. Jesus in six verses tells us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he describes how the tax collector, by faith, cries out, God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. And my friends, the wonderful, amazing thing is this. Remember that the very one who tells of this parable, at the end of his ministry, hangs crucified on the cross as the atonement for our sins. Even as Jesus tells of the faith of the tax collector who cries out to God to make an atonement for him, Jesus Christ becomes for us the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we by faith trust in Jesus Christ and His work of atonement, you and I, unrighteous sinners as we are, we will receive God's righteousness. We are given a true relationship with God, which involves the forgiveness of our sins and a new moral standing with God in union 
with Christ, the righteous one. Our sins are forgiven. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. This assurance of atonement is made available on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus Christ becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we also see that Paul's doctrine of justification has its roots in the teaching of Jesus. Romans 3.25 says that God presented Jesus as a propitiation or or it can be said atoning sacrifice by His blood. The scripture goes on to say that this is to be received by faith. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ serves as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice only for those who trust in His saving work. Atonement always requires faith. We are justified by faith alone. A faith that trusts in Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. The great preacher and hymn writer John Newton once wrote in his diary, during when he was weighed down by guilt, as he lamented and bemoaned his loss and sinful condition, he wrote, But now I may, I must, I do mention the atonement. I have sinned, but Christ has died. Newton understood the atonement is made for the sinner through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His death is our substitute. His cross is our mercy seat. And the blood sprinkled there, His blood, Christ's blood, is our salvation. And we access this by faith. How can you and I be righteous before God? It is by faith alone. We are justified through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He died as atoning sacrifice for our sins, so that we might have life and be restored to a right relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for this gospel. I pray for all of us here that your words and this truth would dwell in our hearts and cultivate in us an increasing love for Christ Jesus. Set our affections for Jesus and Jesus alone. Continue to give us grace and wisdom as we, as a church, seek to daily repent and turn away from our sins of self-righteousness and to learn to humbly love and serve each other for Jesus' sake. May your blessing and grace be upon us. In Christ's name, Amen.